2: Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Questlove Supreme. I'm your host, Questlove, and we have Team Supreme with us uh, by Ia. Hello, how are you
0: today? I am doing well, sir. How are you? I'm great. Is that a new microphone? No man, it's like every day. You, every time we do the show, you you look at me more. Notice something new? Yeah. Yeah, it's not new though. It's, been it's new. like we're meeting for the first time. Exactly. Just look at me.
2: I'm here. It's like we didn't know each other since we were 13. <laughs> don't, don't start that. <laughs> uh, Sugar Steve, how you doing, man?
1: I'm doing great. Nice to see you, Amir. Nice to see you, team. That team.
2: sounds like a deflection. How you really? Doing I'm a mess. <laughs> uh, Tell
1: the truth, Steve. Steve.
3: We're
4: Tell all Steve. a mess. All right. Now
1: we're going to rename you, Steve. Sugars are high. But, high yeah, sugar, I'm, Steve. Uh, yes, yeah, sugar, sugar. Double sugar. Not Steve.
2: Funny. Steve. I think we can, can we start calling it glucose, can, Steve? You cannot do this <laughs> on my watch, man. I'm not. Because. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm gonna.
1: It's all right. I'm. Thank you for your concern. I'm, I'm. going cold turkey on raw cookie dough. I'm gonna be fine.
0: You are too <laughs> old to be eating that. That's crazy. Oh my
5: god. Right. I'm done with all that. I'm
1: mm. done with it. Okay.
2: All right, Steve. I'm now gonna uh, implement some sugarless snacks in your diet.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
2: If it thank works you. For me, it'll. It'll work for you. Uh, Bill. How's. Yeah. Uh, how's life? Everything's good. I can't complain. little. Uh, I'm cool is him, everything man. Everything fine.
5: Yeah, man, everything's cool over here. We just chilling. Everybody's uh, we staying, staying low, staying healthy. We good. That's good. All right.
2: Well, ladies and gentlemen, I will say probably during the pandemic, not only for me, well, I, I will probably speak for the team. We probably watched our, or revisited more content from film and, and TV in the pandemic than we normally have, and I will personally say that I have a new appreciation for the teams that make film. Um, it's not just about the director, just about a particular actor or actress that you like. You, ought, you have to consider the producer, the cinematographer, the lighting director, and, and most importantly the editing of the film. And so I will say that as far as our guest is concerned, started out his uh, his ascent into the professional career of filmmaking as an editor. First of all, in the groundbreaking, uh, what I call one of the first hip hop films, uh, <laughs> Style Wars. Uh, <laughs> not to mention, as uh, editor for some of my favorite Spike Lee films like Mo' Better Blues, Jungle Fever, uh, Juice, Clockers, Girl Six. Um, his documentaries, Four Little Girls, uh, both both of the uh, what I would call the the New Orleans documentaries for. The levees, not to mention, uh, also, I didn't realize hookers on the point. I didn't realize that. Wow. <laughs> <But> you, uh, patches <laughs> <Pimps laughs> on
5: the stroll, <laughs> holes on a roll. Yes. <laughs> the, I the somehow, game chain, change, I but I the do... name remains the same. <laughs> Meat <laughs> candy. She's so dandy.
0: Oh, my
2: God, Wait, did you, like, memorize this film? Dude, you don't you don't, my, you don't
5: understand, bro. Me and my homies used to watch, because this is like I'm in, like, fucking high school, right? So yeah. me and my homies would watch Hookers at the point, and then you come to school the next day and know all the, we would be saying all the lines in class and shit. I would like to
1: say that Hookers at the Point transcends all things.
2: I also watched (laughs) Hookers at the Point
1: the next day went to tell my (laughs) friends about Hookers at the Point, like in a different way, but I definitely watched Hookers at the Point. This
2: makes it official that Bill and Fontegro are the same person. Absolutely. Oh, God. No, dude all day <laughs> Wait, guys 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 hang on not all to right. mention uh his powerful shirley chisholm uh yes documentary. thank you <laughs> and his forays into uh directing documentaries yes. um not to, okay. eyes on the prize which i especially in light of uh <laughs> black messiah and and jesus uh jesus and the black messiah movie him directing the eyes on the prize film uh two i'm sorry eyes on the prize two um, of which uh right 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 the, right right the, right the footage of that film was used in 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 uh in that particular film um but there's also uh the, the Mr Soul documentary um and his his latest uh MLK FBI which um weighs heavily into uh explores the w- w- we can say the harassment uh and the monitoring of the uh J. Hoover led bureau into the life and uh kind of the affairs of, of Martin Luther King Jr. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Questlove Supreme, Sam Pollard. Thank Ooh. you, man. My pleasure. Oh. my pleasure. Okay, now back to Hooker's on the Point. So, oh my God. Yes. What <laughs> happened to Pierre?
0: The classiest intro ever for you, sir, oh. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
5: Terrible. <laughs> You've been out here fucking, I ain't been fucking. Oh yeah, man. more.
4: <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
6: <laughs> I know the
5: whole, I don't you know. You've
6: memorizing, man. Grant Owens. Yeah, this is, this Brent is scary Owens, to yeah. me. Yeah, man. You I could have a some- stage
1: reading. Wow, man! <laughs>
6: you, you had to tone and everything down.
5: Wow, <laughs> you made an impact.
2: So, how, how's it going right now? How, how are you doing?
6: I'm good, man. I'm pretty good. You know, I'm working on a new film about Arthur Ashe. Wow. Hey. I'm yes. Hoping to finish that by June, and you know, developing some other stuff. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll
2: let our I'll let our listeners know that uh, you and I are actually partnering up. For hopefully, uh, you know, in the near future, we'll have the definitive film about uh, the Negro League. Right. Um, nice. and I've been pounding the pavement together, yes, uh, pitching have. to various companies and and whatnot. Um, so that's very exciting for me. I, I yeah, I'll ask. Um, as I said at the top, I didn't realize how important or how instrumental editors are to a film you know a lot of the times like people that aren't you know film buffs or whatnot they just tend to think that the director has complete control of everything the screenwriting the, right. the everything but you know almost feels as though the the editor has the hardest job of setting the tone so I'll ask you first of all as an editor the general rule that I've been taught is that once a film is done um, you're basically to hand, your entire footage to your editor and kind of sight unseen just let them do their thing and not micromanage the, is is that necessarily true or like what is the true job of an, an editor?
6: Well I would I would say this. I would say in the in the fiction world, you know, when you when you're doing editing a fiction film, you're given a script and you know and, and everything that they shoot in that script, you basically know exactly how to put it together. Now it can change when you're sitting down editing sequences together. But usually, most directors leave you alone with a fiction film to sort of put together what we call the first rough cut, you know? And then they come in and they give reactions to everything you have cut out for changes and stuff. So that becomes a director's cut, you know? So that's how it works in fiction film. In the the documentary world, the thing that, one of the reasons I became such a, a, a lover of documentaries is because as an editor, specifically what you're speaking to, Amir, Many times when I was beginning to edit the documentary, the director would come in with lots of footage and say, I have this great idea to tell this story about hip hop and break dancing and rap music. And uh, I'm not quite sure the order, but here's the footage. And then they'd walk away and they'd give you, you know, give me four or five, six months, seven months sometimes to, to create the sequences. You know, and you're basically trying to, in some ways as the editor, read the director's mind to get a sense of what the director's looking for as you're shaping the sequences. Now, sometimes in the documentaries, the director comes in or he calls in and he wants to see sequences to see where you're going before you put the whole thing together. And you show it to him or her and they react to it and you make changes. But really, in the terms of the documentary, it's really the editor's medium. The editor becomes with the documentary much more so than with the features. They become sort of the surrogate directors because they're shaping the story arc. They're shaping the, the tone, the emotional tone they're shaping the sort of the ups and downs of the film as it unfolds. So, you know, as a young editor, that's what I loved. I mean, I was, I was pretty shy back then. So the idea of being a director didn't, didn't entice me. It was the idea that I had all this footage. And you know, the, 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 the big thing about editing documentaries is that you can hit a home run, or you can, hear, you can, hear, you can hit a, a ball that just pop out and you could completely fail. And, uh, you know, that's a responsibility that as a documentary editor you have to take on, understanding that sometimes a director will walk in and say to you after they see your first cut, ah, Sam, this is exactly what I was thinking about. This is my vision of the film. You found my vision. Or they can walk in into the other room and they'll say, after they look at your cut, they'll say, oh, Sam, that's terrible. You didn't understand anything I was trying to do with this footage. We're going to have to start all over again. (laughs) Damn, really? I've been on both sides of the, of the, of those poles, you know, Yikes!
4: Okay. When, I
6: was, when I was young, I would be like, Oh my God, I'm terrible. Nobody <laughs> loves me. It doesn't work. Yeah. But as I've gotten older, that's part of the process. You realize that's part of the process. You're never going to make it right the first time. That's why it's called re-editing and re-editing. I mean, you late, you listed the films I've edited for Spike and even on the feature films, I never made a cut that Spike completely said, oh, it's 100 percent work. Oh, Sam, no no change. (laughs) It just doesn't work that way. There's always going to be changes.
5: Has there ever been a time where in your editing career where, you know, like you said, director comes to you and says, hey, I want to tell this story about breakdancing and hip hop or whatever. And so they give you all this footage. But then during your editing, you kind of start putting together and you see. I know this is what he thinks this is about, but I think there's a bigger story that can be told that maybe he's missing or maybe now when I have all these pieces together, he may think that it's about, you know, just hip hop and break dancing, but there is probably a deeper narrative that, it, that is starting to evolve as I put this together. Has that ever happened? Yeah. How much time. leeway are you giving? All, all yeah. the
6: time. That happens all the time. And as an editor, as a creative editor, you have to be open to the idea of seeing the story in a different way and taking mm. on that responsibility I'm gonna you say you say to yourself should I show it to the director this way because I think it's works or should I say well I'm not sure it works let me show it to the way he asked me to do it I have the ten- I always had the tendency to show it to them the way I thought it would work better
4: you know gotcha.
6: and, and that uh, you know that's part of the gamble sometimes you sh- you show it to them and they say yep yeah. Sometimes you shoot them and say no. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works.
0: I just wonder for MLK FBI, was it the decision to not show the commenta- the folks who were commentating's face? Was that a Sam decision, or was that just like something that y'all had to establish? Because I-, I was noticing that that was like a big difference in a lot of the documentaries that I see these days.
6: That, that, in that case, that was a Sam decision before we even shot. I, wow. had, said, I had said to the producer Ben Hadine that I didn't want anybody on camera. I wanted to all be voiceover because I had seen a film that Amir was involved in. He did the music for Black Power Mixtape,
4: mm-hmm. you know.
6: And I and they had no voice; they had nobody on camera in that film. I remembered that. So when I got to do this one, I said, "We will not show anybody on camera. We're going to do it all voiceover." And you know that was a gamble, but I was willing to take it. Mm-hmm. You know,
5: what was the what was the artistic uh, kind of choice? What drove that decision?
6: You know, I felt I felt that this particular film. I wanted people who were either close confidence with Dr. King or who were historians who could talk about the the, the mythology, the, the built and growing mythology of the FBI. And I just felt like I wanted people to not see people on camera. I just wanted them to be immersed in the footage and hear the voiceover. That's because what happens. it is. What happens when you put camera people on camera? Sometimes it can it can break the emotional momentum of the footage, you know. So, I felt like, no, keep them keep them off camera, keep the footage, keep the archival footage front and center so people will engage. Now, as you saw in the epilogue, we did show the faces when they sort of wrapped up about what they thought about the tapes being released in 2027. Now, I would say that wasn't my idea. I thought the epilogue it should be all voiceover too, but the editor, this was Laura Tomaselli, she had the idea we should put them on camera. So, when I saw the cut and she put them on camera, I said, wow. I wish I could take credit for this, but really
5: hard. <laughs> yeah, because it was a payoff. It was like it, you mm-hmm. know, it was a
6: great yeah. emotional payoff. Yeah, yeah. 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 So
2: I, I I fell down my own rabbit hole um, and just happened to click on Black Power mixtape. Mm-hmm. So apparently, I won a Swedish Oscar.
6: You didn't know that she did.
2: <laughs> uh, I didn't <need laughs> know they had Oscars. I'm like, I <laughs> won, apparently, I won a gold Gulbadage Award. Wow.
3: Yeah, I'm gonna have to.
2: Yeah. yeah, this is the second time I found out I won something and wasn't told. Mm. Uh, oh, this <laughs> very web, This very podcast won a Webby, and we weren't Fair. told. So oh. mm-hmm. <laughs> there's there's a history of that, people. Yeah, Fair. Fair. West <laughs> left Supreme, we win an awards and don't even know it.
0: Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to keep us down, the man. You know about if, that, Sam? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. keep it as humble.
2: <laughs> Sam, what what brought you to the film world or passion? I'll say that mostly, like, from my point of view and my observation, um, people easily jump into music, people easily jump into sports. Um, but I rarely hear of people successfully having a passion for film and jumping into that world and, and like, making a, a, a living and uh, having a, a fruitful career in it. So, what started yours?
6: Well, here I was a young man who grew up in East Harlem. I was going to Baruch College with the majoring in marketing. I was in my junior year, and one day I looked around and I saw myself being miserable, taking all these marketing and statistics courses. And I said, "Jesus, I gotta, I gotta find some after-school activity to do. Hmm. I just, I can't handle this." So I walked across the street to the to the counselor's office. I saw my counselor, this wonderful African American lady, and I said I was looking for an after-school intern internship. And she said, "Well, what are your interests?" And I said, one of the things I really loved growing up in my teens, I loved watching all these old Hollywood movies. You know, I watched all those Warner Brothers and MGM and Columbia Pictures and RKO movies, RKO studio movies, and I loved them. So she said, there was a the PBS station in New York City, WNET, in mm-hmm. 1968, after Dr. King's assassination, this felt it was important to get more people of color behind the scenes, shooting, editing, taking sound, producing. And she said that they had a one-year workshop every year from 68, this was 1971. And they had, on Tuesday nights, they would have these classes from six to 10 where professionals, professional editors, professional cinematographers, professional sound people, professionals, producers, would come in and teach you about the process of making television and films. And then on the weekends, you would go out with your crew, group of people. There was like 15 of us. They would pair us off. We'd go out and shoot little films. Then we'd go into, come back to an editing space and we'd learn how to edit these films together. So when she first proposed that to me, I said, my response to her was, well, I like watching movies, but I don't really care about how they make them. You know, I (laughs) I don't care, but she was very persuasive. She got me to have an interview and I got accepted to this program. And I did that for one year. And the thing that I got attracted to wasn't the shooting, wasn't the producing, wasn't the sound mixing. It was the editing. Because I could be in a dark room. I could be- By yourself. Nobody mm-hmm. could see me make mistakes. If I made a mistake, I could un- undo the footage and splice it back together because we were mm-hmm. cutting on film. And at the end of that workshop, I said I was interested in, try- they said they'd try to find you a job. And I said, I was interested in finding a job in editing. And one day I was working The summer of 72, I was working at a marketing firm on 33rd and Park Avenue. And my mother called me and said that this production manager had called and said they were looking to interview me to be an apprentice editor on a low-budget feature film called Ganja and Hess, directed by Bill Gunn. Bill,
5: yeah, Bill Gunn, yeah.
6: Yeah, Bill Gunn. And most of the crew was African-American, but the editor was this Jewish guy. His sister was this young white girl from Kentucky. So I went and had an interview with this editor, and I got hired in 1972. It was my first wow. get, first job.
5: And then Spike, he remade that as the Sweet Blood of Jesus. He, That's he right. It. He did yes. it as the Sweet Blood of Jesus.
6: Yeah,
4: yeah. Hmm,
2: okay. At, well, you mentioned WNET uh, earlier. Did you, were you interning there, or just? Uh,
6: they had the workshop there. The workshop was part of the NET. You know? So, so it, it, did you
2: have any interaction with... Um, Like the well, you directed Mr. Soul, uh, Soul, but the original Soul uh, show, like, did you work at all?
6: No, I didn't work on it at all. It was, it was, you know, it it had uh, been canceled by the time I got into that program. It was sixty nine to seventy two, so by the time I left the program, it had been canceled. I used to watch it all the time. You know, I used to watch it all the time.
2: Well, they had like a lot of black productions. I remember. uh, was black? You remember a show called Rebop or?
6: That was Repop was not in New York. It was in Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Yeah, but but in New York they had Black Journal, they had Miss, they had Soul, they had Like It Is, with Gil Noble on ABC. Bill Grease was the producer on Soul, and some of the first African American producers who worked for Black Journalists like Tony Batten and uh, Saint Clair Bourne, you know, who I used to who I, who I be, who became one of my mentors later in my career.
2: That's what I wanted to know. Like, who were your? Cont- well, contemporaries, at least starting out with you at the same time. Like, I know that, uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, director Ernest Dickerson? No, uh, what's her name's father? Uh, oh, God, that's, oh, Stan Lathan. Uh, yeah. Stan <laughs> <name>, Lathan. That's, <laughs> that's right. song. Uh, what's yeah. her name's
6: father? Um, that, Stan was already directing at Soul in Black Channel by the time I got to the business. Sam, Sam was making. Very- okay. But
2: what I wanted to know was, like, was there, uh, like a crew of you as young black upstarts trying to get into film or was it just all of you independently
6: kind was, of treading in? The, the program I was in was like 15 of us. We we're all African-American and some of us, you know, got into the business. Some people went to CBS, some people went to ABC, some people freelance, like I did. That was the crew I was with, you know? And then after I did the six months as an apprentice editor on Guardian Hess, that same editor who hired me then made me his assistant. And I was his assistant for three years, from 22, 23, 24, 25 years old. George and Bowers? No, no. I met George right, a, right around 75. I, I sort of was looking for a job, and I went to this editing room, and George Bowers was editing a film called Countdown of Cassini, directed by Assie Davis with uh, Ruby D and Greg Morris from Mission Impossible. George mm. George turned me on to doing a little film. He had me he hired he got me hired to do a little film about the first three black mayors of major cities: Tom Bradley of Los Angeles, a Coleman Coleman Young of Coleman Detroit, Young Detroit, and Maynard Jackson of Atlanta. And it was mm. being directed by David Parks, Gordon Parks' son.
4: Wow! Oh office. wow!
6: Okay. And I edited that when I was like twenty-six years old. And then George hired me. To edit some films for him, and then he moved out to California to direct some low-budget features. And in 1980, I went out to LA and direct and edited for him a film. I don't know if you remember this film, Body and Soul, with Leon Isaac Kennedy and James- Yes, yeah, I, yeah. Leon I Isaac know this Kennedy. Film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I edited that film in 1980.
2: Yeah, I I know this. <laughs> I know this film. Um Yeah, I was at the time in the 70s. Did you? Like, what was your uh, kind of your what in your mind would have been your end game or your 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 goal to get to at that time when you were sort of finding your way in the early 70s?
6: My end game was like, I had this dream of becoming a big time feature film editor. You know, I wanted to edit wow. feature films. That was the big time. That was the goal. At, you know, 1970, 90, 77, 78. I was adding docs, but I wanted to be a a big time feature editor. And then George let me edit Body and Soul. And then I went back to New York and I was adding more docs. And then George did this film in nineteen eighty four with a young Johnny Depp called Private Resort
4: Mm. that I edited
5: in California. You remember that film too, man? I don't remember that one. I've never I've never heard of that one. It feels like (laughs) one of
2: those films that would come on Prism or Showtime. Actually, yeah, that's my It
6: was on Showtime you gotta
5: see. That's
1: funny. Yeah, I've seen the
6: yeah. resort. And, and then I and then I came back to New York, did some other films, and then I got hired by Henry Hampton. In '87, to work on Eyes Two, mm-hmm. and I was working on Eyes Two for like a year, shooting and my first time producing. And then one day, I was living in the Back Bay section of Boston, and my son, who was ten years old at the time, the phone rang. He picked it up. And he said, Dad, it's Spike Lee. And I had just seen (laughs) Do the Right Thing in the movies. And I said, Jason, what are you messing with me for? Man, Spike Lee didn't call me. He's not (laughs) calling me. He said, no, Dad, Spike Lee. So I got on the phone. And sure enough, it was Spike. And a buddy of mine who was his production manager on Do the Right Thing had recommended me to to Spike to cut Mo' Better Blues. Okay. And I turned him down. Wait, what? Wow. (laughs) I, I turned him down the first time because I was still in the middle of eyes on the prize, too. So I said, Spike, I'm busy. Thanks for the mm-hmm. call, but I can't. I had to say no. And then St. Clair Bourne had done a documentary about Do the Right Thing called Making Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. And I had, I had worked for St. in the early 80s, cutting two or three films. And then St. recommended me to Spike. And about six weeks later, Spike called me again, asked me again to do no better. And this time I said, well, he said, let's meet up. And we were both going up to the vineyard to Oak Bluffs and separately. And uh, we met up at Oak Bluffs. We went to a little coffee shop. We spent a half hour in that coffee shop. And I basically talked myself into taking the job because he didn't talk much.
7: their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Barian and Ingrid Segee, this podcast takes a fresh look at the
3: exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus.
2: Okay, well, you said that, and, and you know, you wanted to concentrate on your your one project, and you said the word no, which I clearly don't know the meaning of that word, how many projects can you realistically juggle? Okay, I'll, I'll rephrase that. How many projects should you juggle any calendar year if you are an editor? You
6: can't. You can't do but maybe one or two.
2: So if you're actively working on a project...
6: It's it's very hard. If you're, you if you're actually physically editing, it's very hard to to do another film. Unless, you, you know... You know, listen. When I was a young man, I would do two films, edit two films. I would edit probably somebody's film all day in a day. That'd be my, my my prime time job. And I'd come home. I remember working in Washington on a series called Smithsonian World, and I would edit all day from from like nine to six. I'd go home and have some dinner in St. I was doing a film for St. A little dramatic film for St. And I would edit mm-hmm. for St. From I would edit in my apartment on the steam Deck from like seven till midnight. So yeah, I would I would edit two films. You know, that that's when I was a young man.
1: <laughs> you
5: know, yeah, we don't, we don't do that type of shit no more.
1: That <laughs> when it switched over to digital, did that help at all?
6: Oh, uh, I could probably do three.
4: But <laughs> oh I, shit! But I, I, didn't,
6: I didn't sleep as much, you know. But you, it's very hard when you're editing. You know, it's easier to to multitask when you're producing and directing somebody else's film. You can you can you can do more than one film when you're producing and directing because you know you know this. I mean, you got a team, right. you know, you got, you got other associate producers, you got archival producers, you got editors, so you don't have to do everything yourself. You're not sitting there at the machine editing, you know,
2: so. Actually, Bill brought up a, a point that I didn't think about, at least for musicians. I feel like a lot of us made the full, like the full jump into pro tools are like around like 90, 92, 93. Mm-hmm. And full fledged, like in in mid to late nineties. But for the film world, when did that jump? When did that jump or that paradigm shift occur? Like from digital film. editing
6: to film. around 94, 95. Yeah, I, I cut my last film. I cut the last piece on film for Spike in ninety six. It was Girl Six.
5: Hmm. Oh wow. Okay.
6: That yeah.
2: was done on film and that was, not?
6: That was done on film. Then after Girl Six, I never did anything else on film for Spike. I mean, For Little Girls was was digital. You know, bamboozle was digital. Everything after that was digital. How
2: hard is, is that adjustment in learning new language, learning like
1: well, you guys gotta steal and... all my questions all the time on every
2: show. Sugar <laughs> so Steve wants to know how Lump hard is it right? to? Steve,
1: ask a question. I'm sorry. Well, I just yeah. What was the transition like for you? Was it was it well, exciting I, or frustrating or?
6: At first, it was frustrating because you know I, I didn't think of myself as computer savvy, so I had to I had to get up to speed on working on the computer and stuff and figuring out how to do things technically. there. How old was, were you?
1: Sorry, how old were you at that time?
6: 45. Mm. Mm. So, you know, it used to be, they used to have uh, they used to have, you could call you avid support all the time when you had questions. So uh, the first film I cut on avid, I think I was on avid support every day. You know, <laughs> oh, this doesn't work. How do I make this work? How do I do this? You know, avid support, avid support. You know, but but you know, I I adjusted to it because I, you know, I didn't want to stop editing. So I, you know, and I didn't want someone else to edit for me. So I learned how to do it digitally. Yeah. Did you find that you, you were able to be more creative
1: with digital or than you were with film as an editor?
6: The, the, big, the big advantage to editing digitally is that, you know, when you used to edit film and you wanted to recut a sequence a different way and save the old sequence, you'd have to either make a dupe of the old sequence mm. and then unsplice all the shots to rebuild it another way. Digitally, mm. you can do it in one way and then you can just do another version and you keep the other one. You know, and you know that to me was like a great sort of plus. Ah, I can see three versions of my cut. Now the, the issue, the challenge is, is if you sort of don't make a decision, then you say you got to see six versions of your cut mm-hmm. because then you can't make a decision. So right. you gotta yeah. you gotta be mindful of how many cuts you want to see before you say, okay, this is the one. You know, maybe you make it so real adjustment. Yeah.
2: As far as the quality is concerned, um, I know that as a musician. Um, even though I do use digital technology, um, I'm pretty much using that digital technology to make it sound like mm-hmm. I'm doing analog, analog sure, like trying sure. to make it sound as cheap and whatever. Like, are you the type of editor or do or do editors in general still try to, I don't know, execute that same process as far as, uh, you know, like we we will use terms like, well, there's a warmth sound with analog that you don't get with digital, and it sounds yeah, sure. cold. And is that the same with you?
6: Yeah, I mean, you're still, you're still trying to, you're still trying to figure out, when you're, you know, in terms of your aesthetic, how to make it still feel like you're making a movie and you're not trying to do a commercial. You know, so you're crafting it in a certain way. So you're saying, the film aesthetic that I learned when it was film, I'm trying to apply that to the digital technology. You know. I'm trying not to edit films like what I would see the fast-paced commercials or something on you know these music videos. I'm still trying to bring to it the storytelling, editorial storytelling techniques I learned when I was editing film, you know, and I try to still apply those. you know, and then it depends on who shoots your material. I mean, a lot of documentary filmmakers still have the ability to have their camera people shoot it so it's 24 frames per second. You know, it looks like you're shooting on film. You know, sometimes you want to change the textures and the, and the and the coloring of it so it has a more sort of filmic texture. You think about all those things. You know, when you when you're shooting these things, if you go and you watch some of these films I've done in the last few years, they all I still try to give it a sort of an emotional film sensibility in terms of the approach. You know
2: that that leads to my question. Okay, you you brought up bamboozle. Mm-hmm. so at the time. When we uh, shot that with Spike, and Spike yeah. was explaining to me that yo, we're going to shoot this all on digital, yeah. um, and I think that was like new to him at the time. Like th- the way he shot that film was w- was way different. So even watching him on the set mm. and how him and uh, was Malik his his lensman, I'm, I'm not certain.
6: Ellen Curious, Ellen Curious shot. Him.
2: Oh, okay. Now, when I saw that film and it was digital it still had a i don't know what to call the type of film that like they use when they do soap operas
6: but well, it had that feel <laughs> cuz that's what they wanted you
2: know? is that is that video or is that well that's what i was asking was that yeah. done on purpose because then you know you cut to cut to she hate me she hate me still had a kind of you don't yeah. know if it's
6: video yeah, or... Yeah, so it had the videos so the old television shows texture. Mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about.
2: But now it's like, it's borderline like, it, it feels like it's 35 millimeter when I'm watching it. Like in, in the beginning when I first got my digital TV, everything felt like a soap opera. Maybe like yeah, after because... 10 years of watching it, it, I've just conditioned myself to accept this is the norm. But are they still like rewriting the quality yeah. of, of what digital is?
6: Well, the thing you should remember, you know, with your TVs, you know, there's settings in your TV. Yeah, you got to set proper.
5: that frame rate.
6: You got to set the frame rate so it doesn't look like digital. Uh-huh. Like, you go to these hotels, yeah. sometimes you're watching things and man, that looks, you know, it looks like, like, a play,
5: it, right? like a play. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like Yeah.
6: So proper. Right. Yeah, but if you set your frame rate on your television, it won't look like that. If you set it for 24 frames per second. They're gonna look like
5: thirty frames per second.
6: Mm-hmm,
0: <laughs> 30s, yeah. Ooh, I love a good lesson. Let me go get my remote.
5: Shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's because <laughs> on the new iPhones, like on the, because like yeah. I got the twelve, I got the twelve Pro Max, and they can you can shoot it, you can shoot thirty frames per second video, four K, right. and then you yeah. can shoot sixty frames, and the sixty frames just it's look hella just real. Like, it's just, no, hella it's real. just, yeah, it's like nah, it looks plastic. Like it yeah. looks so real, it looks fake. It's crazy.
6: But the other thing too, you know, <laughs> I yeah. was wondering. The other thing, the other thing, too, is that with Bamboozle, Spike was shooting on DV cameras, the first DV cameras, and, and the frame rate was 30 frames per second, but it really had a real digital feel. And what's happened with the cameras, those DV cameras, nobody uses those anymore. So the technology's improved. So now when you shoot with these video cameras, they, and if you get the, if you use the right lenses, you can feel like you're watching film, you know. It's the so, the kind of technology.
2: So if they were, well, I already know that they did a, uh, uh, like criterion. a criterion. I know they did. Yeah. They already did a criterion reissue. So what I'm asking is if there's a remastering process,
6: it won't, uh, it'll, it'll still look the same.
2: So you can keep it looking just like it did in 2000.
6: Yeah. Cause I just watched it too on Criterion. It looks the same. <laughs> it mm-hmm. looks just like it did on the, when they shot it. You, okay. They're not going to be able to change that that look. That's the feel that they got, and it's not going to change.
2: So, at at the time when you were doing it and watching it, was it was it sort of off-putting? Like, okay, is this going to be the future of movies now? Like, is everything going to look like? Yeah, it was. You off-putting. know, I picked up a video camera and made it look like this, or
6: yeah, it felt a little off-putting. It definitely did, but you know, sp- Spike. But, you know, Spike did it for a couple of reasons. I mean, he had access to all these cameras. He shot with six cameras, you remember? Yeah. He shot with lots of cameras. And also, it had an impact on the budget because shooting with those cameras, he didn't spend as much money if he was shooting on film. You know, he did shoot the performance stuff with, you know, with with Tommy Davidson and, and Savion. He shot that on film, six Super mm-hmm. 16. But everything else was video.
5: Okay, I see. Yeah. What is a question I had? Just what is an example? And you don't have to, you know, name any particular movies if you don't want. But what is an example of just bad editing? Um, just kind of, just you know, just from a fundamental standpoint. Because there's movies I watch and I'm just like, yeah, they felt like they could have cut maybe ten, fifteen minutes out of that. It felt too long or whatever. Um, well, what know, is bad editing?
6: I, I never say that anymore. You know. Okay. But most films when you watch them, I watched the film the other night from 2015 with Sean Penn and Idris Elba and Javier Bardem called Gunman.
4: Hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they
6: shot all over the place. They shot in they shot in South Africa, they shot in Spain, Barcelona, they shot in England. And it's not a good film. It's not a good film at all. But yeah. it's not about the editing. It's not about the cinematography because it looks great. And it's edited pretty well.
4: <laughs>
5: thing
6: to remember it's usually not bad editing, it's usually bad scripts.
5: Yeah, bad storytelling. Uh, yeah. It's bad
6: storytelling, <laughs> you know, because the technology has improved to such a degree that most films look fantastic. Most films are edited well. The problem is is the story sucks. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so when the story sucks, you, it doesn't matter how how well it's put together. It just doesn't work, you know. So I'm, you know, I never really see that term bad editing anymore. You know, it's, it's really this bad storytelling.
5: Yeah, I was just, yeah, that was curious for things for clearing it up because I wonder, like, yeah, where is it? Where does it get made? Is it the story or is it? It's the story. Can, can, can you have a good story and then a, a bad cut can mess it up? You know, yeah, you to could, what degree is it?
6: rare. It's rare. Come. You could, but it's rare. You can definitely have a bad story and, and the cuts won't help
4: it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going gotcha. to say, I was going to say, what happens in the case of a film like The Irishman, which clearly I see more of it as a a curtain call than I do a film. Like, I don't know if I would name The Irishman in my Scorsese, Scorsese. you know, Mm -hmm. Forgot about it already, damn. No, no, no. But the thing is, is that I enjoyed it, but I saw it more as a curtain call. Like, okay, this is obviously the last time we're going to see... Pacino and De Niro and Scorsese and Schoonmaker like at at this level and this intensity of a gangster film so it's kind of like okay I forgave the fact that it was three hours and 45 minutes or however long it was but in your mind but I'm also not a film buff so there are a lot of things that I will let slide that a lot of my film buff films or friends will just start criticizing now I know it might be sacrilegious or whatever, but what do you do in the? What would you do in the case of a film like The Irishman,
6: where? Well, here's here's my take on The Irishman, and you know, there's some people I know who love it, who absolutely love that film. To me, to me, I feel like it was what I call Scorsese's sort of like the last trail. You know, he's on this. he's This, yeah, was, his, mm-hmm. this was his swan song. He'll make more films, but in terms of the gangster milieu, he should leave it alone. Because for me, it was too long. And I didn't buy the idea that Joe Pesci and and De Niro look like young men. Oh, my
0: God. What is that effect? Not at all. What is this effect that doesn't work on everybody that
6: they try? (laughs) It didn't didn't work at all. It
2: did not. But wasn't that also like a a primitive... Like, in my mind, is that bamboozled in 2000 where it's just like this new technology that they're working on? And it obviously they'll...
6: You know, it could be one of those things where in 10 years, people will visit that film and say it was a masterpiece. To me, it was too long. And it was a curtain call. And, you know, and I don't need to see De Niro or Joe Pesci play gangsters ever again. <laughs> you know? It's Agreed. Agree. You, know, you know, it was just, you know... And, you know, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of Marty's films, you know, Raging Bull and Goodfellas, even Casino. But this one was like,
5: yeah, Casino. Um, yeah. yeah.
6: This one, this one was like, OK,
5: this is time to stop this this journey. You know, which- <laughs> the one I will say, the thing I liked about it that I thought was interesting was that he whereas his old films. You know, he was kind of shown as you know glorifying the gangster life with casino and goodfellas you kind of see the see the shiny yeah. side of it yeah. but with this one it was more more so for lack of a better term it was just a blue collar gangster like he wasn't rich he wasn't
4: yeah, he's a blue you know
5: player. yeah you know he was just that so i did think that that was an interesting shift you know tone wise but i agree i don't think we need to see them play gangsters i think they yeah, don't have nothing yeah. new to say in that yeah. way
6: and it was watching, you know, even the scene I do. I remember the scene where Nero's character beats up the kicks, the gangster in the street.
5: Dude, <laughs> and he's like 80 years old.
6: <laughs> yeah, I said, I said, this guy's an old man. I mean, he can barely <laughs> lift his leg.
2: <laughs> but yeah. I, I, well, see, I thought that, uh, like normally, especially if you watch Goodfellas and Casino, um, the way that Thelma. Um, does cuts and edits very intensely, and things that you know, trademarks that Scorsese is known for. This was the first time where I didn't see that fast paced kind of uh, editing action that makes it more intense. So, I actually thought that
6: it, well, it was yeah.
2: unique for them to do a slower, a slower cut kind of Scorsese yeah. gangster film that wasn't,
6: yeah, you could say that, or you could say that. You know the other way to look at it, you know, is that sometimes, you know, this. Sometimes when when when, the, when an artist gets older, their their rhythms and their paces slow down. Mm. You, know, mm. you know. Yeah. Oh, see, I thought that was on purpose. Well, no, okay. I didn't. I, it, I did. You know, sometimes it is, but sometimes you, you. I mean, I gave you a great example. You know, you know, I've been doing the Max Roach film, right? Right. And so. And you watch Max in the 40s, and you listen to Max in the 40s and 50s with Clifford Brown, I mean, right. everything is... But I right. you to the 70s, and he's still playing. You know, he's doing right. opera. You know, his drum also waltzes. But you can tell it slowed down.
2: Right. You Wait, know, slowed down. You know? <laughs> Wait, I, I, it's funny you said that. I, I had a moment, probably one of Max's last public performances, yeah. Uh, before he passed away, where they set up this drum thing between him and I, and uh, this, I, I feel so uh, fuck boyish uh, recalling this story. You know, I, I I was like, all right, I gotta. I'm going up against Max Roach, man. I better prepare. So I I spent a month like just oh working my on God, my me. technique. No, well the thing was, I had going up against. I did this with Cindy Blackman. Oh, yeah. Uh, Maybe seven months before. Uh But you did it with
0: Roy Haynes, too, and you learned. And this was
2: 400. (laughs) No, I I did not battle Roy Haynes. But I'm just (laughs) saying that with Cindy, one, I was way out of shape. I was like 400 pounds, whatever. And like three minutes into the solo, she just dusted me. And I was like, I was on my never again joint. And so... I was like, all right, Max Roach, I don't care. I'm gonna dust his ass. And oh I didn't realize God. that he was like, you know, his late eighties and just yeah, man. He was just happy to be there. He's like playing a little tinky dinky dinky dinky
4: dinky
2: And I felt like an asshole at the end, like, oh man, I
5: was showing out. And then I think too, because by that point in your career. You don't really have anything left to prove. I mean, right. it's like, yeah. motherfucker, I'm Max Rose. Like, what? That's it. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. If I get, right. I can play fucking spoons and bottles. You know what I mean? Like, right. whatever. That's true. That's true. Exactly. That's absolutely true.
2: Yeah. So, um, I want to ask you about uh, style wars. Um, for a lot of hip hop aficionados, um, especially old school cats, like between Wild Style and and style wars, so, like
4: right.
3: those
2: are the first, probably the two really authentic looks at um early hip-hop how did you talk about getting involved in that that uh project and was it a big deal to you that 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 sort of thing was greenlit to to make in the first place
6: well it was interesting the the director tony silver the i was working for victor kineski the guy who trained me and he had had this editing service and we we had been doing trailers Tony Silver used to do these movie trailers these little two three minute movie trailers and we used to edit those for tony and then one day he said he had a buddy named henry chalpin who would go up to the bronx and queens and he would photograph and and these all these graffiti artists doing their thing and he decided tony decided to take a camera crew and start shooting and so he just started shooting all these guys, the breakdancing, all the artists, you know, all of them. And then he came to Victor and says, I got all this footage. I don't have a lot of money, but you guys, I'll pay you something so we can start editing. So in like 1981, 82, we started editing that film for not a lot of money, you know. And I knew about the whole hip hop world, you know, I knew about graffiti, but this was a deep dive. It took us a whole year to edit that film, you know. Because Tony was always changing every cut that we made. He would look at a cut and say, oh, this is not right. This is not working.
4: Mm-hmm. We
6: re-edit, we'd restructure, we edit, restructure. And by the time that whole year was over, editing that film, I was so angry and disgusted with Tony, I didn't want to see him again. You know? <laughs> what? You know, because we just worked so hard on it. We really worked hard. And, you know, I never realized that the film would really take off like it did. You know we knew that it was an audience but we didn't realize we really had such a big splash i mean even today i mean i've had students you know in the last 10 years who, who've seen that film i mean even spike said he didn't know i edited that film after i did no better blues and he saw my credits with this you edited you one of the editors on star wars but yeah man you know
2: so you had no clue that this was something revolutionary like not
6: I knew it was revolutionary, but I didn't realize it was going to have such a wide reaching impact, you know, because when we finished it, Tony took it away and we knew it got in some festival. You know, we didn't, you know, back then when I was editing films, I didn't think much about how where they were going to go so much. I was just it was, you know, I was trying to make a good film and then move on. So okay. it, it was one of those things that, wow, it really had impact.
2: <laughs> I guess that said, um, for me. The film seems so guerrilla like. Like, did, did it have? Did they at least go into the project with uh, some sort of like plan or map, or was it just like we'll just shoot as we go along and try to make create a story out of this? Because it wasn't like they were there to teach us the history. It was almost like a reality show, so yeah, to speak. Yeah, it
6: was. It was guerrilla like. I mean, sometimes they would they would go to these yards and they would shoot the guys doing their thing. Sometimes they did have a little bit of a plan, like when Case went into his house. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see Case walking through the projects, walking through the playground, walks through his house, the camera pans off. Pans they decided to do that. Then they went upstairs, and they sat down with Case and his two buddies mm-hmm. and had them drawing, and Case is telling you his story about how he lost his arm and stuff. Right. And then seeing when those guys on the train, when Case and his guys up on the L train, you know, and then, you know, like when we put the... We did that montage. That was sort of Tony said, "Let's try, let's do a montage. Let's figure out a montage." So we found that song when they're saying, you know, they're doing that rap right on the music, and we just created it. Some of these things were spontaneous. Some of these things were a little set up, but most of it was guerrilla type filmmaking.
2: Well, when you're in that situation, um, what happens if you're? I assume that if you're editing already, mm-hmm. um, you're at least towards the the end stage or the fourth quarter of the project, what if you're in a situation in which uh, you have like way more broth than you have uh, stew content for that particular meal? In other words, like if you're editing and you're trying to create a, a, a sort of coherent storyline and it's not all the way there yet, like, do you guys go back out to shoot some more stuff um, or some,
6: sometimes, Yeah, sometimes if they have the budget and you can get them to go back out, they do reshoots. Sometimes if they don't have the budget, then you got to improvise even more to figure out how to make it coherent and work. If you have more broth and stew, uh, stew ingredients, you know, okay. so the thing you always have to remember when you're making a film is always keep yourself, keep on your toes with the surprises. Never settle into the idea that, oh, this is gonna be the material I have, I gotta make it work this way. You can always with film, it's really malleable. You can try different things and all the time to come up with different ways to look at a sequence. You know, okay. and a, a really good filmmaker will always be open to trying different things. Because if you're not, then someone's gonna take it from you and say, well, you you know, there's another way, because there's always another way to make a
1: film. Always. Okay can you uh, can you talk about uh, your relationship with composers and music editors I mean we just we just recently interviewed Terence Blanchard, who I'm sure you know and I've been working on a bunch of films lately and I find that that relationship is always very different as uh, editors some usually work with the same composer, some don't and just figuring out that situation and how that how to achieve the best possible thing and what comes first music or not music what are you using yada 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 that's what I'm usually, interested. usually
6: in my processes. You know, I'll put a cut together. Like, I just finished this other film for HBO called Black Art and the Absence of Life about these different artists from Carrie Mae Weems to Carol Walker to Carrie James Marshall. Mm -hmm. So we put the film together and the editor said, what kind of tent music do you want to use? I said, well, there's a composer out in L.A. named Catherine Bostic and I want to use her music. So she had done the music for my August Wilson film. So I said, let's go back, and I had her send me some of that music that she had done for the August Wilson Festival. Let's use some of your music as temp. Oh, send me some other pieces that you can use as temp. And then we laid in some of her music. Some of it worked, some of it didn't work. But when we got to a cut where we had some of this temp music in it, then I had some other music that I found that I liked that I used. I used some Cold Train music. I used some some Billy Strayhorn, which I knew I couldn't keep because it was going to cost too much money. But then we had a music session where I said to Catherine, You know, here's the feel I'm looking for, here's the tonalities. You know, and I play an instrument, so I'm always talking about here's the kind of instruments I want you to try. I want, I want flutes here, I want woodwinds here. I think you should have what do you play? What's your instrument? I play flute, I used to play saxophone oh, wow. a little too. So, yeah, oh, okay, so so you know, and you know, so I, I'm talking about the rhythm and the pace and the tonality. Now, some people, you know, some directors don't know music can't use musical terms they say you know i wanted to be strong I want blue to be or black or yellow oh, yeah. yeah totally <laughs>
4: no.
6: but i try to give them some real specifics so i'll say like i'm talking i'm talking to this composer now about his odd show and i said you know man we're trying to create that 70s feel so go back that 60s and 70s feel go back and listen to the scores that quincy jones did for in the heat of the night and a 1968 film called the pawnbroker Listen to that rhythmic feel. Listen to the rhythm and the pacing of that. I want that kind of feel for this score for this film. You know, you know. Mm-hmm. And we're using, we're keeping some music that we have in the film. Now, when Arthur Ashe goes to South Africa, we're going to use Gilbert, uh, Gil Heron's Gilskar Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. You know. Okay. And we're going to use The Temptations, "How oh, I Wish It Would Rain." You know. But so listen to those pieces to see if you can sort of instrumentally replicate that feel. With some of the other sections of the film so i i mean i tried to be very specific with composers you
5: know now the fact that you can speak music and film that goes a long yeah, way
0: it helps it really
6: helps
5: yeah.
0: all right y'all you know what season it is Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel and if you're like me you're already in your airbnb app I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I will say, and it's weird, and I, I hope you know this. This statement isn't hyperbolic or timely, only because the film has not been seen in 30 years. For some reason, he hasn't allowed allowed it on streaming or whatever. But for me, at the time in '91, watching that Taj Mahal scene mm-hmm. oh, yeah. in yeah. Jungle Fever, yeah. Oh, yeah, to me that was. I, mm. of all of, in Spike's whole canon, I don't think six minutes really hasn't gripped me or or, or yeah. frightened me as much as watching that film. Like, it wasn't over-exaggerated, and oftentimes, you know, Spike will hammer a point home with over-exaggeration or that sort of thing, but it was just, like, t- to watch that scene in its six-minute glory, like, to the backdrop of Stevie Wonder's living for the city and the yeah. way that was edited and all that stuff. Um, Could you talk about just the the choreography of how that scene came to be?
6: I think, you know, you'd have to ask Spike this, but I think he played that music when he was shooting that scene. Oh, because, wow. Because it was interesting to me about when I cut that scene and Spike, he said he wanted to use Living in the City, I don't think I made a music cut. You know, usually... Really? I don't think I made a music cut. I know if you go back, you guys watch the Love Supreme at the end of More Better Blues. I made a big music mm-hmm. cut there, you know, between when the babies between yeah 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 like, yeah going yeah oh, baby's baby, yeah, is baby I made a big music cut there. Yeah. but on but on Living in the City, I don't think I made a music cut. It what was do you- on-
0: now, There's Sam, also- you know you got to break that down because I'm like, wait, music. What are you saying? A music cut or a music part? Well, a music
6: cut where you take, okay. where you remove some of the music to make it work with to the make scene. it work in the okay. scene. Yeah. But this one, I don't think I made any music cuts living in the city because, Well yeah, you know, with,
2: with the with the exception of the occasional cut of them smoking crack across the screen, it almost felt like it was one long take. But I know that you use multiple.
6: I use multiple visual takes. I'm talking about it. I didn't make any music edits.
5: Mm, yeah, the music, was it played straight through. Yeah, it played straight there.
6: through, right. Yeah, usually I make a music edit because the sequence is too long. But the two films where I never made a music edit was on that one and the sequence in Girl 6 when, what's her name, is going to the beach. and. How come you don't
2: call me anymore? Yeah. Yeah.
6: How come you don't call me? Man,
5: I and I love it, that too. fucking
2: yeah. scene. That's heartbreaking. I love, love that it. scene
6: yeah. too, man. Those yeah. two, mm. I don't think I made a music cut. You know, was that an the answer. first
2: catfish on film, Fonte? <laughs> <laughs>
6: right, right. I was
5: the first, the first fly flyout story going wrong. <laughs> you
6: know, no, it was. It was almost like Spike had had edited and shot that scene in in the pace and the rhythm that I didn't have to. I made all these individual picture cuts that were, but it was like they were just right. Everything was just right. I was like, wow, I couldn't believe it. I cut I, it at one point. I borderline felt like.
2: He started with Living for the City mm-hmm. and then somehow like wrote the film around that cuz I that's just That's what
6: I think he did. That's exactly what I think he did, Amir. I think he yeah. I think he started with the song and he then built the scene from that. Cuz that's how it works.
2: And dress okay. Yeah. yeah, because it's just so unusual to And again, Living for the City is like 6 minutes long, but yeah. I I just wondered how with editing is concerned like how is he like because the timing has to be perfect because literally for the for those that haven't seen the film um there's a scene where uh flipper purify played by wesley snipes um has to confront his brother for stealing uh the The family television the tv yeah (laughs) sam jackson um playing a, a crackhead his older crackhead butter uh brother uh flipper gator Gator. Gator. Gator, right? Gator, Gator and Flipper. Um, mm. Matter of fact, I believe that cons had to invent a category just so that Sam Jackson could win uh, Best Supporting Actor. They they didn't have a supporting scene. So basically, what happens is uh, Wesley Snipes starts at one point in Harlem uh, and does a real time walk, mm-hmm. uh, what seems to be four blocks or whatever, uh, to a crack house, a crack den. Um, of which, once he gets there, you know, especially for 91, when people were still had their heads in the sand over the crack epidemic, like to visually see that shot. I'm so I'm really shocked. We didn't even ask Spike about the scene when he was on the show it twice. Didn't. I forgot. But um,
0: doesn't it pause in the middle when 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 Leslie has the conversation? with uh, Char- was it Charlie? Merlin? No, the Not Charlie. Still going. Uh, OK, OK. No, so even- the music's still
2: going.
6: The music's still going.
2: Right, wow. so I guess what I wanted to like, did they did they have to choreograph that? Wow! In terms of, or was that just great editing? Because as far as I know, Wesley Snipes starts four blocks ahead, walks to the Taj Mahal, four blocks later, confronts Halle Berry and, and Sam Jackson, and you know, of course, this has to work in coordinates with with the song. You know,
0: I, and stopping to talk to child.
6: That's, that's what I'm saying. I think I think Spike played the track. While
2: he was shooting, as he okay
6: Very, because okay. It, it, because it almost worked so perfect when I cut it, I couldn't believe how how it worked it worked so well.
2: Right, <sighs> yeah, that to me is like one of his. If I don't know, and, and again, I don't know timing wise if it still could work in twenty twenty one. I worked. beg him all the time, like why why haven't why is this the only film of yours that's not
6: you know was available he, for screening? what was he say?
2: I don't know. I I, you know, and it's weird. I've, I've, I've done some, uh, you know, I've read a few blogs or whatever and they'll try to say like, well, you know, this, this is his only film that wasn't as timely or, you know, that sort of thing. Like it, it, it didn't age well or that sort of, I don't know, but he sort of just, huh. he's shruggish about it. But for me, I don't know. I, I, between that scene and, and the final scene with, Ozzie Davis and Sam Jackson yeah. like, I thought that was some of his Ooh. most yeah. powerful yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 visuals there yep. so um I, w- I I guess I, w- I want to jump into you as a director not just as an editor as I mentioned at the top with eyes on the prize too uh the uh, aforementioned uh Jesus in the black Messiah film uh is based Judas and the black messiah Jude, oh, I'm sorry, I keep saying Jesus. You
0: ain't the Forgive only me. one. It's
2: <laughs> Wait a minute, I've went on record in other places publicly and said Jesus, and no one has ever corrected me
0: because he is that's because we weren't there,
2: that's
1: because we weren't there, and that's what we do. We correct you, that's why that's we're the here. Worst.
2: Anyway, so they use the footage from your documentary, um, interviewing, um, I, I forget his name, William um, O'Neill. Yeah, William O'Neill. And um of course they they also note that he commits suicide the day that uh Eyes on the Prize finally released um, yeah. gets televised. Um at the time, why did you choose to uh include him in your film and was he as brash as that clip seemed to be? I uh, you know he kind of spoke with, like, no remorse, like, well, at least, well, he did, he at did least I did it. something. You
6: yeah, know. yeah, I think he was I think he was conflicted. And, you know, I think he was a complicated man. And when, when, when you know, because I didn't produce that particular segment, but I was on the series. And. Uh,
2: oh, OK. I thought yeah,
6: you directed that. That one okay. I didn't direct. But yeah, and, you know, it, the producer whose voice is really asking the question was a woman, you know, so it's you know, I think I don't think of him I think he was a conflicted man, I just think he was he was torn, as you can see in the film, and it caught up with him emotionally and psychically, you know,
5: you yeah. know, and also too, they just didn't show uh well, not that they really showed in the movie, but I think a lot of times context is lost on just how young they were when they got involved doing this shit
6: he was caught up he was caught up between a rock and a hard place, yeah, you know. So, you know, he was a conflicted man. So it's a sad story, quite honestly, very sad. Yeah.
2: So with uh, yeah. MLK FBI, what, what prompted you to even return to the story or in, like to investigate the story? Because I, I guess for a lot of people, you know, there's, there's sort of a fatigue on civil rights and how many ways we can tell the story. How did you know that there was another story to tell that we weren't aware of?
6: It was a book. We read this book by David Garrow, a historian, about the surveillance of King by the FBI and Hoover. And we thought it would be a good story. If we told it right, we thought we could make it work. And, you know, the reality is is that I don't think there's going to be a fatigue on stories about King or Malcolm or even, you know, Fred Hampton. I mean, there's always an appetite. And this this is history now. This is 40 years almost 50 years ago so this has become really important history. So we thought we could give it a new spin. You yeah, he did. You did. And, and that's what we did. You know, that's that's how we did it. You know, it was a new way to tell the story.
2: Um how did you it, it, as far as the the film concerns it really gets deep into how the FBI tries to intimidate and manipulate and use propaganda against King um especially His uh, kind of philandering, if you will, with other women and that sort of thing. Um, Was there any apprehension whatsoever to sort of let that cat out of the bag? Even though these things are already know on record, I know they're on record, but
6: the I I don't think the average Joe likes this.
2: I'm gonna go to FBI and and you
4: know
6: (laughs) there were were reservations. You know, we we talked about it. You know, we felt like you know what's going to happen if we put this stuff in. You know, is it gonna Are we gonna be doing this the service of the FBI? And we talked about it constantly, but we knew that if we left it out, someone would say, Well, you guys really just you know, tried to clean this up and not should Dr. King. Yeah, whitewash it. So, you know, we we talked about it, we talked about it, we talked about it, we tried to we tried different versions of the section about supposed the supposed rape until we felt we were doing we were being responsible as filmmakers. So, you know, it's it's never Sometimes the decisions you make are never easy, but you have to make a decision. And that's that. when we say, okay, let's make the decision. We're going to put it in. We're going to try to be responsible filmmakers and tell it in a way that doesn't sound, doesn't seem salacious.
2: Were there things that you discovered in, uh, well, first of all, what is, what is the research pro- besides the book? Um, how much personal research do you as director have to do? And not just like, okay, what, your team or that
6: sort of no, thing? No, no, you got to read books. You got to read articles. You know, you try to do as much research as you can so you understand the subject you're going to tackle. And then you bring on an archival producer to help you find the material that you think can help visualize and orally tell orally tell the story, you know? So you, you, you always, I mean, when you're making these films, you got to do homework, you know? You could do homework. You could You could do homework on any of these documentaries for two or three years before you make the film. But sometimes you you get schedules and you have to sort of do it faster, you know. So, I read the book, I read some of the letters, I read some of the the, the Freedom of Information Act material, you know. And Ben did also, so we we knew what we were doing, you know.
0: Did, did the King family have well given, especially given who you are? Did they have any like heads up or no, no you have heads any conversation? Okay, hey, no, because okay. we know the
6: King family is litigious, you know. They're they're looking. They're looking to make money, you know, and when they're making money is, you know, we knew that they they want to they want to charge for any time you see Dr. King's image or hear his voice. Yeah. And, you know, it, the, the amazing thing, you know, is that they didn't shoot that footage. It was shot by networks and stuff like that. But they feel a proprietary sort of, you know, ownership mm-hmm. of, the, of their mm-hmm. father's image and set.
0: This brings up a good subject because I we asked this of uh Mike Africa and uh oh uh Will, I'm sorry, the directors Tom, uh,
5: Tommy Tommy
0: Tommy, Tom, mm, Tommy I'm about to
2: say Tom Tommy Matola. <laughs> right. uh, Tommy, to- yes. Tommy, Tommy Oliver
5: was his
0: last name Oliver. Yes, Tommy Oliver, I'm so sorry. Yeah uh, who did it who did their documentary and it's it's interesting that people laymen don't understand how people get paid for like their appearances in and documentaries and things of that nature, and I was I'm, I kind of learned a little on this process of Amir doing songs of uh, songs that shook, but just of archival and breaking down like how it's not really a money making situation with documentaries, right? Like you shouldn't be thinking in that way, but when you do, there's a way, it's a different way of doing things. Am I wrong in saying that? Well, it's or correct you, me, say it cor- correctly if I'm not. Yeah,
6: you should never. You should never think you're going to make a documentary to make money, because that's that mm-hmm. rarely ever happens.
0: But even some yeah. of the participants who feel like they're a part of this story and this move, this this project is going to make money. So if I'm seen on camera, then I should make a I lot. I
6: deserve of- a piece. Yes. Yes. Yeah, but you see, but even you if you
2: break the record for a highest documentary,
6: no, no I'm, playing. <laughs> I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm playing. i the, the rule of thumb is you should never pay a subject to do a documentary. Thank you. That's it.
2: It. I, I found out something. <laughs> In this process, okay. Well, I found out that if the subject is the executive producer mm-hmm. of the project, like that's kind of a conflict of interest. So that, oh, that's right. In other words, like because Wu Tang insisted on being the executive producers of that documentary, right? They're not eligible for, uh, you know, like awards. season like for, I guess that would be an Emmy thing. They wouldn't be eligible. Um, and also, you cannot pay yourself. Su- you can't pay a subject to be a talking head.
4: That's However, right. You're supposed yeah. To.
6: yeah,
2: right. However, I found out there's a, a slight. I don't know if this is the magician giving away. Uh, That's a what secret. I was
0: thought I was doing when I said the archival thing, right? Like, yeah.
2: You yeah.
6: Pay, if someone has, if someone has something that you wanted to use in your film, archival right. or stills. You yeah, can, you say, I,
2: quote, archival, uh, yeah, you say quote archival. Yeah,
6: you're paying your licensing their materials. That right? You can, that you can do.
2: Yeah, but I, I I will say that that's that's a loop around it. You can yeah that's do archival. Loop. Okay, okay, that's Sorry. sort of things.
6: Just yeah. folks, but I'm never gonna pay you later.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I got some good archival though. I got oh, I got some background
6: <laughs> <laughs> <some> <laughs> stuff.
2: Let me get
0: it together.
6: Yeah, that may change it though.
0: <laughs> Day. <laughs>
2: so sam i uh, I just want to talk about uh the upcoming projects you have well in in particular the um the the Negro league project that you're proposing so since you're at the beginning of it, what in your mind like in your mind do you already have an outline of what you want to achieve or is it still a thing where you have to see what you're given
6: and then add to it later or is it's a c- it's, it's a combination of both i mean in the case of the negro leagues we know we have, you know, uh, Bob Motley, Brian's father to help tell that story, right? Mm-hmm. He's gonna, we're gonna build, and I've been reading this book again. So we know we're gonna have elements from his his life to tell that story. And then the other element I know that we're gonna have to tell a story is the archival images, footage and stills to tell the story. And we also have this, 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 this box full of interviews that that Byron did over the years that I'm going to use. And in this particular case, because some of it's not shot so well, I'm going to use it as audio. I'm going to use it as audio only. I mean, mm. you know? Oh, okay. Because okay.
2: I don't That's want smart. to
6: see some of these people on camera. I'm going to do it audio to help tell that story, you know? And the other element that, that I, that I, you know, you've heard me say this is to create these impressionistic recreations of the fields, of the places they played, of the, of the, of the locker rooms they were in give you a sense of that experience to, to make it to, to, my attitude is to, to try to make the film as poetic and informative as possible, you know, in a different way than I did MLK FBI. This one, I wanted to have more poetry, you know, this was, I want the music to sort of, you know, replicate the period that this, the, 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 the Negro leagues evolved through, you know, so that'll take me back to there's There was a great musician for my taste, you know, from the from the early 30s, you know, you know, name um, uh, what's his name, Ernie Fields. He okay. had a he had a, he had a great jump band in the 30s, and his music would be absolutely appropriate for the Negro Leagues. You know, even quite mm-hmm. honestly, you know, Count Basie's early bands come out of that Southwest feel, you mm-hmm. know, it would have a, that would be a great feel for that that period also. You know, when you had Herschel Evans and Lester Young, you know, and Ben Webster. You know, so my head's already thinking the kind of musical template I want to use to help tell this story.
2: Um, My final question is, is there a film project that you long to do um, that you haven't? And that also includes non-documentary stuff as well. Like, is there a fantasy film that you want to knock out the box?
6: Well, you know, I got the Max show, which is almost done tweaking (laughs) now. And if I had, if there's, a, if, if there was a fantasy film I had to do, man, you know, I was listening to, uh, I would do a film. I would do a film, not about Blue Note Records. I would do a film about the musicians who were part of Blue Note Records, but who had a style that sort of changed from what I call that hard bop period to the post-Coltrane mccoy time period. Mm. Listening oh, to okay. people... Like Joe Henderson and Sonny Rollins you know and Freddie Waits you know the, you know because I'm in, I'm so into the music that's my head always you know
2: okay so <laughs> basically the stuff that Ken didn't cover in his uh exactly, documentary
6: exactly right man <laughs> exactly right no Joe Henderson man no so, Freddie Waits, you know yeah
2: I, I get it well, Sam, I
5: thank you uh, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it.
6: It was fun. It was fun, guys. And thank nice you. Nah, this
5: was super fun. Yeah, man. Yeah, and yeah. if you see Brent Owens, tell him telling myself what up, cause give me that, give me that <laughs> rap
6: again, man, for the opening.
5: Pimps on a stroll, hoes on the roll. Meet Candy. She's looking dandy on a Friday night. Everyone knows the names change, but the game remains the same.
2: <laughs> I don't know who you are anymore,
5: Farley. Oh, I do. That's my. I name.
2: do not know who you are. <laughs> tickle 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 tickle, tickle <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Ford. Ford who scored? Who scored who just at
1: the point? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was It was Kenny. Wow,
6: that is so crazy. <laughs> because you know, because Brent, because Brent <laughs> Owens, his brother is Jimmy Owens, the trumpet player.
1: Good
4: night. Oh, wow. Good
2: night. Hooker's at the point. <laughs> yes. That is crazy. All oh right, guys. Well, Take look, care. On, on behalf of Laia, Sugar Steve, uh, I'm Bill and Fonte, and thank you, Sam this Quest Questlove signing off. We will see you on the next go-round West Love Supreme. Thank you. Be good. Take care,
5: everybody. Peace, y'all. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte. Make sure you keep up with us on Instagram at QLS and let us know what you think and who should be next to sit down with us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. All right?